It's been almost two years since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine, with the United Nations estimating that more than 27,000 civilians in Ukraine have been killed or injured in the conflict. Tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops have been killed or injured, while Russian forces have suffered almost half a million casualties. The two sides currently seem locked in a stalemate that has many wondering who is winning the conflict. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is Timothy Martin-Hill, a statistician who works in the private and academic sectors. He's also the author of an article in Significance examining data related to the Russian-Ukraine war. Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Why did you decide to write about this? Well, it was partially coincidental. My normal field of work is in election prediction. I don't make election predictions. I measure them. I'm a statistician by profession. But because my previous employment was in computing, I had to make sure that I could keep up the amount of statistical work per year for my continuing professional development blog. So I developed a career compiling and assessing election predictions. Now, from about 2014 to about 2020, there was an enormously large crop of applicable elections in the Anglophone world. So there was interest in other publications for me to pursue this. But for 2022 and 2023, there was less interest than there would normally have been because there were no major elections in Britain and the United States, apart from the 2022 midterms. So I anticipated this and looked around for something else. Now, in a conversation with some people that I know, the question came around to the Ukraine war. This was in early in 2022, immediately prior to the invasion. And the question turned out, how do you know who's winning? Mm -hmm. Now, that was the spark. And that conversation occurred around about February, March 2022. And then the Russians went in and it became rather important that this be measured. That's how it started. After about 18 months worth of work, uh, the, the article, which I then wrote on the subject, was published in Significance a, a month or two ago. So it started off with a single question, and 18 months later, I have what I believe to be an answer that was sufficiently well thought of enough to be published by somebody else. <laughs> I I love that that the way that you framed this this piece was was thinking about gaps. Yeah. And then ultimately having to measure some characteristics of the conflict in order to address these gaps. Did you have some larger mental model that that you about sort of the the participants in in a conflict such as such as Russia and Ukraine that that led you to thinking more deeply about how these gaps were described? Well, first of all, I need to point out that a lot a lot of the theoretical work underpinning the article did not come from me. It came from uh, some academics 
that were originally, I think, in the US Navy, and who published a very large book on how to assess war. And that was part of the background reading that I did for the article, of which it was was somewhat extensive. Hmm. If you ever end up reading um, von Clausewitz's On War, you can miss out the middle bit. That's that's <laughs> all about how to pitch your tents if you've got your back to the river. But it's the first third and the, and the latter third that are the interesting bits. The way to conceptualize it is to consider the participants in a war. War has been a human universal, but it has evolved over time. The wars we fought as cavemen were different to the wars that we fought in the Middle Ages. I think from memory, the concept of cavalry has been independently reinvented at least twice, for example. But since about the third millennium BC, when we started having city-states and wars started to take a recognised structure, there have been four components to every single war. There's the kings, there's the generals, there's the soldiers, and there's the people. The kings are the people who give the decrees, the person who acts for the state. The generals are the people who interpret the commands of the king into something that a soldier can follow. The soldier are the people who actually do the killing, and the people are the ones who suffer, die, and for whom the war is nominally fought. With those four components, they each interact with each other, and those interactions can be measured. And it is these metrics that are referred to as gaps. Hmm. Those gaps can be measured, and that is broadly how you measure a war. So in the article, you start with this discussion of the Clausewitzian gap. Did well, I say that right? Yes. Um, oh, could... oh, yeah. Uh, the the, the Clausewitzian gap. It wasn't... Bear in mind, it's not me who named this. You can blame it on some academics. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, academics but, always get blamed oh, here, Martin. You know? <laughs> well, technically, I am one. Uh, yeah. days, but, but anyway. Um, von Clausewitz, Prussian military person, Early 19th century, was very big into the analysis of war. He's a very ambitious man. He married up. He wanted to fight in Prussia. And of course, Prussian, Prussian soldiers are very big on fighting. And he wrote a book. It was called On War. It was one of those things that led into the concept of the Clausewitzian gap, which was named by somebody else. A Clausewitzian gap occurs when the king issues an order, but the generals issue orders that do not mesh with it. That can happen when either the generals misunderstand or they, in, in a fluster, pick orders that they can enact rather than what the king wants them to do or it can be an active form of sabotage um i can give you a real example and unfortunately it's american um (laughs) these kind of things happen all the time just one of the more famous ones was with the vietnam war Hmm. during the vietnam war the king in this case was president lyndon johnson and the generals in this case were uh, Secretary of State McNamara and General William Westmoreland. 
who was, I think, and I'm sure you know this better than I do, the officer commanding forces in Vietnam at the time of the Vietnam War when it was it was at its height. I think he was later replaced. Lyndon Johnson's broad approach was keep South Vietnam within the Western sphere and defeat communism. A very well thought out strategic goal. The actions that the generals decided to undertake to achieve this goal was to be measured via body count. Body count is a highly debated and contested metric. It is difficult to assess, even if you're counting your own side, because weapons tend to kill people in horrible ways, and mm -hmm. counting the bodies afterwards is difficult, because there are bits everywhere. And because of this, and the tendency of people to inflate figures, if that, serve, if that serves mm. their purpose, body count was a badly chosen metric because uh, because the more that you increase body count the less the citizens of south vietnam were eager to stay within the western world because they were being killed so this is one example of a clausewitzian gap the goals of the king in this case president johnson were not served by the orders given by the generals. And that's a Clausewitzian gap. And you can measure it. It, it. it depends on the metric of merit that you pick. So as you mentioned, the Vietnam War is an example. I, I remember many, many years ago seeing a, a, a story, and I think it was, it, it was from a political scientist. I wish I could remember the reference now, where it was the study by the, of the public support for the Vietnam War, the U.S. public support, and that, uh, that it decreased as a function of body count. That uh, essentially with every tenfold increase in the number of, of U.S. military personnel who were dying in this conflict, the um, amount of support decreased by the same it, it decreased by the same amount in the public attitude. So, where does that that fit into this mental model, or this not mental model, but the model that you described of the four the four participants? Uh, in this case, it's it's it is the conversation gap and the credibility gap. The credibility gap is is a term that you may be familiar with because again, that particular terminology dates from the Vietnam War. The conversation gap is the public understanding of the war. Do the public understand what the war is about? What is the goal of the war? Do we have the resources to achieve it? Do we have the public support to maintain those resources for the war? That is known as the conversation gap. And this is why things like propaganda or public information are so important. A king that, that cannot close, or the kings and generals that cannot close the conversation gap will not win the war because they will not have the support necessary to do it. One absolutely marvellous uh, 
kind of tacking away from the United States for the moment and towards Napoleon. Napoleon was one of the first people, to, was one of the first generals, emperors, in fact, to totally mobilize his population in modern times. Prior to Napoleon, in Europe, wars were done by small armies or armies of mercenaries. But the French Revolution in the late 18th century upended the whole continent. And then Napoleon came along and said, I am France and France is with me. And all of a sudden, everybody in France was on the French side during the war. This is a beautiful example of when the conversation gap is fully closed through French fervor and cannons. <laughs> They managed to get very close, an enormous amount of support from the French population, and that enabled an enormous military mobilization by the French, which is why a, a country which is large by British standards, but not by world standards, meant to, uh, was able to go through Spain and all the way to the gates of Moscow and very nearly conquer the entire continent because in this particular instance the conversation gap was fully closed he had the support of all the people behind him mm -hmm. but if you have a war where conversation gap is stays open the, the public no longer supports your war or believes that it has found out what the war is really about and then abandoned support. Then that becomes a credibility gap. And at that point, the, the war is, is lost. You will lose it eventually, regardless of how you fight. The, classic, the recent examples are the United States and the United Kingdom in the wars in Iraq. The United Kingdom went into the war in Iraq on the presumption that this was to remove weapons of mass destruction. The public were fully behind it. It was an easily comprehensible war aim. But then they discovered that the weapons of mass destruction were fictional. And at that point, support evaporated. And the prime minister at the time, Tony Blair, remained in office for about three years, but was forced to resign in the middle of a term. Conversation gap must remain closed. If it is not closed, it becomes a credibility gap where the people no longer trust the kings and the generals. And at that point, war is lost. You're listening to Stats and Stories. And today we're talking with Timothy Martin Hill about an article he's written for significance about the Russian-Ukraine war. You know, I was I was interested in, in some of the figures that you had in, in your in your article, I mean, one of the figures that that was looking at things like the Russian support for the war, according to opinion polls, I I was struck by they seemed remarkably stable. Uh, although now this is a, a relatively short time scale that this was looking at, and I I don't know when when such decay when there's a decay in support will start to to emerge. Were were you at all surprised at seeing that pattern? Interpreting Russian polls is difficult. There is a contention amongst people on the western side particularly in britain 
that you cannot trust the Russian polls, that the Russians are lying to the pollsters and the rest of it, and that these numbers may be fictional. There is a good argument to be said for that, but there is a counter-argument that says that the triumph of Putin since he came to power in, I think, the year 2000, is to distance the people from the government, from the the function of politics. Just as uh, in China, uh, politics has become entirely divorced from the people. China is not a democracy as we would understand it. The function of government is done by the Chinese Communist Party, and the arguments are within the party itself. Similarly, in Russia, the people have become distanced from the function of politics. And as a result, they have become somewhat apathetic is the wrong word, but more willing to trust the functions of government to the government. Putin has enormous uh, popularity in in, ele- in elections. He, he wins them all, and it's not all a case of, of cheating or badly counting the numbers. It's simply the feeling amongst the Russian people that they trust the government to do the governing and that their support is more a expression of faith or, to be very cynical about it, social satisficing in the government rather than what it would be in, say, the United Kingdom or the United States which is a voter support for the actions of the government. In Russia, the polls tend to be more geared towards the person of the government or the concept of the government doing the governing, whereas on the Western side, it's more the actions of the government. So the support of the Russian people for the war did not surprise me. In the article, you're looking at these opinion polls, but you also at one point start talking about the sort of the merits of certain metrics that people are using to decide whether they're winning or losing, right? So you have the poll, the opinion polls where you can look at, are you winning or losing public opinion? But then also like the generals and, and you know, the, the kings, right, are looking at how many people have died, how many, how many um you know, tanks have they lost? Can you talk a bit about why you felt like you had to walk through some of these metrics and sort of evaluate them in regards to sort of how we figure out if a country is winning or losing a war? I'll split that into two parts. Firstly, um, there are the metrics that people are using. Um, these, the ones that you see on social media, or on the news, things like the list of ship losses, the list of aircraft losses, the total combat losses of the pro-Russian forces, the number of casualties. These are measures of performance. These are metrics that soldiers use amongst themselves to assess how well they are doing. A measure of performance can be thought of, are we doing things right? These are the things that soldiers use to assess their own performance and generals use to assess the performance of soldiers. But they are not useful in deciding who is winning. 
if you take who is winning as a strategic goal, then you need to know what the nature of the war is. There's an American writer called Thomas Ricks, who is absolutely wonderful. I, I, I recommend him wholeheartedly. And he says that the major, the major and possibly only function of a general is to decide what kind of war we are waging. In Ukraine, the war being waged is a war of occupation. President Putin wishes to transfer administration of Ukraine from Kiev to Moscow at, at a very bureaucratic level. And in order to do that, he needs to invest the country with sufficient forces and sufficient bureaucracy to administer it in a way that he sees fit. And there are various reasons why he wishes to do this. Um, consequently, the war is a war of occupation. If, present, if the Russians occupy 100% of Ukraine, they have won. If the, if the Ukrainians occupy 100% of Ukraine, they have won. So now that we understand what kind of war it is, we can work out how to measure it. For a war of occupation, the metric of merit is very simple. It's the amount of area occupied. You can track it on a map. It, it is that simple. So in this specific instance, I chose the number of second-level administrative divisions that currently had Russian or, po or pro-Russian forces present in them. And that got it down to something that was really simple. That metric has certain characteristics which are desirable in a statistic. So, for example, it can go down as well as up. At 100%, one side is one. As at 0%, the other side is one. It can be depicted, depicted graphically. It can be gotten over time. You can measure it fairly straightforwardly. You can compile it under warfare conditions. You don't have to assess it from both sides. And those characteristics and some others meant that the area occupied would, would suffice as the metric of merit for the war. Other proposed metrics, such as body count, remaining reserves was a good one, but it's very difficult to measure. Battles won is very, very relative, and it's difficult to measure. The amount of material lost, which we've referred to previously, is a measure of performance, not a measure of effectiveness. It doesn't matter how many tanks Russia's lost. It doesn't matter how many planes Ukraine has lost. What matters is removing the Russians from the area that they occupy, or from the Russian point of view, moving your forces forward and occupying more land. That's the metric of merit. So that's why I chose area occupied as the metric of merit for this current war in Ukraine. 
Yeah, so that that clearly suggests that with with if there were other goals other other than occupation, that other metrics would apply. But I'm I'm really intrigued at at then or not intrigued. I'm 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 saddened when I look at uh, like the one of the figures where you're tracking the percentage of second level divisions with adjacent forces present because they're not approaching zero or one hundred. I mean, it looks like it's relatively stable between 25 to 35 percent. At least that was as of of midsummer of 2023. Yes, and it, and it hasn't it hasn't changed very much. That doesn't give Wolf. me a lot of hope for resolution anytime. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it, is if these absorbing states of zero and, and 100 were achieved. It's 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 is difficult to see a way forward for both sides mm. because of the level of tech if because of the level of technology that each side is limited to it the war favors the defense it's become a very world war one war anybody who goes in with a tank or an inf- armored fighting vehicle or an inf- uh, armored personnel character carrier or an infantry fighting vehicle has a high proportion of dying because of things like mines because of things like drones because of the fact that neither side has air superiority it is very difficult to move forward the ukrainian counteroffensive during the spring and summer found this out very quickly there were some horrendous numbers coming out in terms of casualties and it changed strategy from moving forward to trying to attrit Russian forces in such a way that they would withdraw before the Russian presidential election in, I think it's March 2024. The presumption is that during winter, and during the run-up to the election, President Putin will find it politically difficult to bring reinforcements forward. So the theory goes in, well, it's been proposed that the, Russia, that the Ukrainian theory is, is that if they attrit Russian forces as much as they can, then just as they did sometime back in April, May last year, they will move their forces back but that's where they are at the moment they cannot move forward through prepared defenses which they tried to do in zaporizhia and paid a terrible cost for Mm -hmm. similarly russian forces in the east of the country around bakhmut are trying to advance but advancement is measured in villages It's it's very very small either way. Give I'll give you an example. I work in Oxford, a town that is about five kilometers wide. Okay, it's a, it's a, it's a large town, small city, depending on what you think about it. In England, it's about five kilometers wide. You can get a taxi from one side and be at the other side in less than an hour. When the Russians invaded and finally took Bakhmut. It took them two months and what they call flame artillery, which is something which is very similar to thermobaric bombs but but smaller and you can fire more of them. 
And by the end of it, uh, Bakhmut was a wreck. It, 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 every, every, every building is damaged. It's just a plume of crowd and of cloud and smoke and rubble and all the buildings are trashed. It took them two months to do that. Yeah. And that's what the pace of the war currently is against a determined defense at this level of technology and without things like air superiority people who attack do not make good progress people who defend can defend the land this i assume is why ukraine has currently done a bit of a volt fast and is now attacking areas near the coast I forget which one it is. I think it's Kherson, but near, near, nearer to Crimea, um, because the area around there is marshy and is not and is difficult to defend, and is relatively easier for them to get to. You you, do, you don't have a minefield in the middle of a marsh; they sink, so it's a little bit easier for them to attack, and they are now focusing on those areas instead. But it, it illustrates the point. In a war of occupation, the war is won or lost by the area that is occupied. But in the present state of technology that the Russians have and the Ukrainians are limited to, they cannot easily displace the other side, which is why that line, and I think we're looking at the same graph at the moment, has remained effectively flat for about a year now. So, who is winning this war? Are we at a stalemate? It, it's 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 a it's it's a stalemate, and it will remain so until somebody comes up with something better. We keep uh, proposing game changes. Some of them work, some of them doesn't, but they're just making the technology a bit better. What I I, I imagine would be a game changer, would be if, if one side or another could achieve air, superior, air superiority or air supremacy. Mm. I forget the term where you totally dominate the skies and the other side cannot uh, move. Then you could do things like paratroops or going round in a ship. And that might make a difference. But the current approach, which can be rather awfully characterizes trying to drive through a minefield does not work and until one side or another achieves a game game changer this will remain because there is a limit to what flesh and blood can achieve it may well be that the ukrainian approach of picking easier targets or attriting russian forces because there is, there is a limit to what even the Russians are willing to lose. There is a possibility that the Ukrainians will yet win, but it's not going to be quick. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. 
Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts or other places you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.